Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we as we open your word and as we allow you to shape the way we see your word, may your word indeed change the way we think. May it change our hearts. Grant us obedience to your word. Grant us desires to a desire to serve you and to honor you by obeying your word and allowing your word to shape us day by day more and more into the image of your beloved Son. We pray may now still our hearts and minds and remove distractions as we open your word and as you speak to us. We pray for us in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. This morning we are going to be reading Colossians chapter 1. I'm reading from verse 15 down to verse 23. We are not going to preach that. Um, in fact, we're not going to get very far into the section this morning. There's some things we need to address. But let us start by reading uh, Colossians 1, chapter 1, and from verse 15. He, that is the Son, and we will point out later on, that is the Son, who is referred to in verse 14. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of the God of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless to us the reading of his word as we uh, go through this passage, this passage and see what Paul has taught the, the Colossian church and how we need to uh, have our lives changed by what he has said. We already said in the former sermon, Colossians chapter 1, uh, in that epistle of Paul, um, the salutation is slightly different to what is in the rest of his collection of epistles. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, he says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And that is where the change is. In almost every other epistle except one other, Paul would say at this point, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But here Paul has chosen to end that salutation slightly differently. And I, and I showed and I explained last sermons that Paul seems to set up the next uh, thought, the next main thought, the next section, by putting a precursor in the one before. 
And so in this particular part of the opening of the chapter, he says, Grace and peace from God our Father. And then Paul goes into section, we know section verse 3 to verse 13, and he speaks exclusively about the Father. Uh, that whole section is addressed to the Colossian church as it points out that the God who he's speaking about here is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He clearly identifies who this God is. And this God is identified by his association with his Son, uh, the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as he goes through this, he, he draws and he points again to those three things, that, 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 that trinity of things that he puts into his epistles, love, hope, and faith. Um, and he comes also down to the gospel. So all that's wrapped up in uh, section 3 to 13. And he says that this gospel has had an effect in the life of the Colossians, and they are bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So again, he brings in the understanding that this is about God and the work of God in their lives. And he comes to the end of that section, verse 12, and he says, We give thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And so Paul goes from verse, uh, verse 2, uh, identifying God the Father as the one who's going to be speaking about in verses 3 to 13. And right in verse 12, uh, he speaks almost exclusively about the Father. Then in verse 13, he, he, he forms a transition, and he draws together the Father and the Son. And he says, uh, He, that is the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sin, and so Paul ends on this uh, identification of his beloved son, and then from there we go into the next section as Paul prepares for that in that wonderful section from verse uh, 15 down to verse 23, uh, really 15 to 20, and then 20, 20, 21, 21 to 23 uh, uh, will will be spoken about at the end of that. But uh, Paul then prepares him to hear this tremendous exposition of this uh, son. Uh, the beloved son, his only son, and we'll hear about that a bit more this morning. Paul prepares his to shift their focus from the father to the son by expounding the unified work of the father and the son in salvation in verse 13. It's the father who bears the responsibility for taking us out of the kingdom of darkness, a kingdom in which we lived from the day of our birth. And when we, when we think of the kingdom of darkness, we think of demons and, and Satan and and, and, and things that are evil. This morning, you had the privilege of being exposed to that domain of darkness. You saw clearly how teachers who are heretical to the degree that is phenomenal have presented uh, to you through the screen how they are, um, are, are, are workers in a domain of darkness and they remain dark and they take everybody with them down this, uh, this path. So you and I have all been in that same domain. If you this morning cringed at what you hear, what you heard, if you cringed at the way it was expressed, you and I were no different. We were all part of that same domain from the moment of our birth. A kingdom that is defined by and dominated by darkness, that's the kingdom in which we have been, and that's the kingdom from which the Father has taken us out. A kingdom in which we were held captive, we were slaves, uh, only Jesus could set us free. And a kingdom in which we were under the judgment of God because of sin. That's the kingdom of darkness. And we have all been there. And we have all uh, been part of that because of our birth 
being children of Adam, being born of the fallen nature, and being born in sin. But it is a son who redeems us from that, and he pays the price for our release. That is exactly what, 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 what verse 13 is saying, that he has, he has procured salvation for us through the work of his beloved son. It's the father who rescues us from the authority, the jurisdiction, and the controlling power of Satan, and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He takes us from one kingdom and he puts us in another. When I saw that transfers us, um, some of you here may have had the same experience I had growing up. When we were kiddies, we never had iPods, cell phones, digital toys, and AI driving our uh, attention. Simple things like a transfer fascinated us. A transfer was something you bought at the shop. It looked about the size of a stamp. It had a picture that was fixed to the paper and it couldn't come off. You put in some water and you take the transfer, you put it onto your hand and you rub it dry and you take the paper off and the transfer stays behind. That's what it did. It took an image that was embedded and fixed to the paper and the water broke that bond and when you put it onto your hand and it dried, it stayed permanently there. Well, until it wore off. Your mom washed your hands eating the bath. But it was transferred from one medium to another. That's exactly what's happening here. Exactly what Christ has done. That's what God has done in His Son. He's transferred us from a kingdom that held us bound and we were locked in and that bond was broken by the finished work on the cross and we were transferred into another kingdom. It's the same way in which God has broken the glue that kept us fixed to the domain of darkness. We were fixed and we couldn't release ourselves. It is the beloved Son whose substitutionary death on Calvary breaks the holding power of sin and nothing else. And, in, and, to, and to belittle him in the way that we've seen this morning, to denigrate him, to remove from him the power that's exclusively his and which only he has, uh, is, to, uh, is, to, is to blaspheme God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, it's only the beloved son who substitutes the Calvary breaks the holding power of sin. It's the beloved son who pays the price to set us free from Satan and his domain. Satan is not the victor. Christ is. He is and he will always be. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. The Father took us out of the domain of darkness and permanently transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That was a work of the father, a work accomplished through his son, and a work which is finally ratified in our lives by the Holy Spirit. The triune God is working together so that you and I, who don't deserve his grace, who deserve his judgment, who don't deserve his mercy, who deserve his wrath, we are able to be transferred from children of darkness and from a domain of darkness into a domain of light in the domain where his son is king. And this morning, if you are still unsaved, and I, and I use this phrase because it's a commonly known phrase in Cape Town, you know what I'm speaking about. Or if you don't, it means that if you have never in your life come to a point where you recognize that you are a sinner, that you are bound by chains of sin, that you are still locked into the domain of darkness, if you've never come to a place in your life ever we have recognized that you are unable to change who you are. And you come to a place where you realize that where you are now, you are unable to stand before a thrice holy God. You are unable to appear before God who is holy, holy, holy. You are unable to appear before a God who is just and sovereign and great. 
and you realize that and you repented of your sin and in faith cried out to him for salvation, then you will be changed from a child of darkness to a child, child of light. You'll be transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. If you haven't done that, then you are still in darkness as you sit here this morning. It doesn't matter how many times you've come to visit this church. It doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible with your family. It doesn't matter how many times you've sung songs that are songs of praise of which, which you know nothing doesn't matter how many times you've done all those things. Those things are just simply a religious practice which, tries, which you try to use to make yourself be comfortable. You should not be comfortable. You should be disturbed. Because if you're still in the domain of darkness and have not been transferred into the domain of his son, the kingdom of his son, then you stand in jeopardy of judgment and of hell. And it is a son, the son who has performed as a complete the work that has made this possible. It is this son, this son, that is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 of Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The invisibility of God is an attribute of which we are all aware. We all know that. But we don't really grapple with it as we should. We really accept that the Holy Spirit cannot be seen. Well, He's called the Holy Spirit it's in His name. And we accept that he's not seen, he's, the, he's an invisible, and we call him the invisible person in the Godhead. But there are two invisible persons in the Godhead. We also know that according to John chapter 4 verse 24, that God is spirit. We all know that the account of Jesus addressing the woman at the well in Samaria, and uh, he eventually says to her, God is spirit. And those who worship him must be worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So while the visible spirit nature of God should be clear to us all, the scripture still takes time to emphasize this truth in a very dramatic way that makes it absolutely clear. The scripture does not allow us to kind of get it by logic and just think about it complacently. The scripture makes very clear and definite statements about the invisibility of God. John writes in his, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4 verse 12, No one has ever seen God. Think about that. We've gone through the first part of Colossians and read about God and His work. We have spoken about God at very different levels. We have sung about God. We've read about God. And yet no one in the entire existence of humanity, according to John, has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. John's point is clear. No human eye has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God in the same way we see physical objects. No one has seen God the way that I see you now and you see me. And the fact that John is speaking about physical vision and not just a perception here is clear from verse 20. In the same book, chapter 4 verse 20, John says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen. So John is saying, if you can see your brother... And you, when you do see your brother, which means physical, natural sight, then, uh, and you say you, um, you don't love him, then you cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John is putting together here the natural uh, vision that we have of seeing a brother, and he says, with that vision, you cannot see God. He has said already, no one has ever seen God. It's obvious from these verses that John is referring to seeing with natural sight, as we now see each other. And John is clear. No one has seen God in that, in that way. So what about the Old Testament? Those of you Old Testament scholars, you're going to say, whoa, 
Does the Old Testament not say that God appeared to men? Does the Old Testament now finally contradict the New? And right away, all your, the red flags going up. How can we then reconcile the old and the new when we consider the visibleness of God? Can he be seen or can't he? Has he been seen or hasn't he? Is he seen or not? Because this is exactly what Paul is said in Colossians, that he is uh, the image of the invisible God. So the appearance of God in the Old Testament generally is generally called theophanies. And many of these appearances uh, take the form of supernatural events. Moses in the burning bush. God calls Moses to himself and Moses turns and sees a burning bush. He hears a voice. He doesn't see God. He sees a burning bush. Uh, and God identifies himself as God and tells him, take off the sandals from your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. And Moses recognizes that this is somebody uh, that is uh, unique and the bush is unique because the bush is not being consumed. God appears to his people as a pillar of fire in, at, in, in, at night and a pillar of smoke in the, uh, in the day in the wilderness. And so God is there. He's present and real, uh, but he's not seen as God. There is no person to be seen. He displays himself in these events that are supernatural and that clearly, from those who experience that event, they are clearly aware that God is in these enormous events. It's even in the small, still voice in the wind. Not in the lightning and the thunder and the roar, but in the small, still voice in the wind, he identifies himself to the prophet. God makes himself known and heard in different ways. But there are appearances that do not fall into this category. There are appearances that is hard to dispute. There are times when God appeared to men looking just like an ordinary man. And possibly the best known is the appearance of three men to Abraham, Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him by the oak of Marmory as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham sitting at the hottest time of the day, trying to find some shade in the door of his tent. And as he looks out, three men approach him. And Abraham sees them, see them as visitors. And Abraham does for them exactly what he, what he do for any other visitor that would come across the front of his tent. It treats him like any other man who he'd receive as a sojourner and a stranger. He had their feet washed. He invited them to sit and rest. He arranged to have a meal prepared for them. And they talk face to face. So experience that Abraham is having there in chapter uh, 8 of Genesis is a man engaging with other men. Eventually the two of the three men leave. And Abraham is left alone with the third. And we're reading... Chapter 18, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom on the way to pour out judgment on Sodom. But Abraham stood still. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So just who was the Lord that Abraham stood before? We all know, we all need to follow a few events recorded in the Old Testament to try and find out who this Lord is. That Abraham was able to look upon and um, we have reunited in the New Testament at least at this point in time of the sermon that no man has ever seen God. We have to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 16. In this, and Genesis, chapter, chapter 16 of Genesis uh, starts with the account of um, Sarai, Sarai, not called Syriot, and Hagar having conflict because Hagar has fallen pregnant uh, by Abraham and there is conflict between her 
and, and Sarai. And so um, eventually she's put out in the, into the desert. And in verse 7 of chapter, of chapter 16 of Genesis, it says this, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, hey, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. This is the account that Moses is recording of this event. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction." Verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell against, over against all his kinsmen. And so we get to verse 13. So Moses is still writing. Moses just called this person who appeared to Hagar the angel of the Lord. And Moses continues to write in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I've seen him who looks after me. It's clear from this text. According to Moses, the Lord and the angel of the Lord is one and the same person. That's clear from the text. Moses hasn't changed step. Moses hasn't put in the gap. He goes straight from calling him the angel of the Lord several times. And then says, she called, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Hagar didn't call him the Lord. Moses is identifying him as the Lord who spoke to her. So back to chapter 18, verse 22. So the men returned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. This is just two chapters later. And the Lord is mentioned several times uh, in this context. Can we conclude that the Lord in chapter 18 and the angel of the Lord in chapter 16 are one and the same person? Which we have to identify that because this speaks to God's invisibility. If he was invisible in the New Testament, was invisible in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. And I'll read to you quite quickly. Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. And coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other at night. And so we know this event. This is the event around the children of Israel uh, having fled from Egypt. They've been, they've been set free, and they come to uh, the Red Sea, and they are about to be uh, crushed by the Egyptian army. And so you say, well, there it says the angel of God. Well, verse 24 says, In the morning, watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against Egyptians. So, Moses, again, clearly identifies the angel of God with the Lord. He already identified the angel of the Lord with the Lord. And so we have in the Old Testament the appearance of the angel of the Lord and the Lord, and it's appearing to men. Uh, in this case, in the, in the case of Exodus, I've just used that to show to you that the angel of God and the angel of the Lord is the same person. But in the other event, in, 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 in Genesis um, 18, he, the angel of the Lord or the Lord appears as a man. And we know he's a man because he was, his feet were washed. 
he was given food to eat. We know that those who were with him, those two angels, were physical. The various chapter, they go down to, down to Sodom. And they are met by a crowd of people who are trying to do them uh, harm with um, intersexual relationships. And so when they are inside the house, and Lot goes out, eventually they're able to take their hands, which is physical, put on Lot's hand, and put him into the house. They were physical. So these were physical encounters between Abraham and the Lord and the angels who came with him. So, for the sake of time, let's do a very quick shift back to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Here is uh, Paul's account of the same event that's taking place in Exodus. For I do not want you to know, to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, when he appeared, when he worked, when he was with him in the wilderness, and when he appeared to Abraham, and when he was uh, uh, protecting his people and giving them all that they need, needed, uh, he's not known as Jesus, because Jesus has not been born. Hundreds of years have to pass. Paul calls him Christ because Paul can join what has happened to the person we now know as Christ. But there as God the Son, uh, the, third, the second person of the Trinity, he was able to intervene and get involved with his people, either to protect them, to feed them, to chastise them, and to simply uh, guide them as the God. And so they were able to do from these texts who the Lord is appears all over the Old Testament. The Theophilus in the Old Testament undoubtedly appearances of Yahweh. Yahweh appeared in the form that made it possible for Abram to look into the face of God and not die. This is precisely the opposite of what happens in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, or the glory of Yahweh. In Exodus 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God understands what Moses is asking. And God says to him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Could Yahweh here in Exodus 33 not have shown Moses his face as he did to Abraham? Whether he could, it is not for us to conclude. Or speculate. What we can be sure about is this, that he did not. Otherwise, Moses would have died. That is clear. He says to Moses, you cannot look upon me, for to look upon me as a human, with a human face, is to die. Exodus 30 verse 22, Exodus 33 verse 22, and 1 John 4 12, make it crystal clear that no man has ever seen the face of God. We've already said that the Holy Spirit cannot be seen by the human eye. We know that. We have just shown that both Old and New Testament declare that no man has seen God. Therefore, the only person in the triune Godhead who is left to be seen was not the Spirit or the Father, it has to be the Son. And so the, the Theophanies of the Old Testament are therefore appearances of the Son of God. These are pre-incarnate appearances of the second person of the Trinity, often referred to as Christophanies, or more accurately as a Euphany. And so we know that if we are going to be true to Scripture, and there are two very clear statements one from John and one directly from God that no human eye can look upon God. And we reference it as God the Father for God the Son was seen in the New, in the New Testament. People looked upon him and that is the whole point of where Paul is, is going in Colossians. But God the Father and God the Holy Spirit remain unseeable 
to the human eye. And the angel Lord has to be one of the persons in the triune God. It says he exhibits qualities that clearly identify him as deity. This angel Lord is just not an angel. When, when, when this reference is made in the Old Testament to an angel of the Lord, uh, that could be to another uh, spiritual being. But when, uh, but, but when this uh, angel is identified, it is the angel of the Lord, and he claims to have a divine nature. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, verse 2 and 5. He says, uh, he identifies him in the burning bush as the Lord. In Genesis 48, verse 16, uh, when Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons, Jacob acknowledges that he is able to forgive sins. So the angel of the Lord is not only divine in nature, is able to forgive sins, he has to be one of the three persons in the Trinity. And it can only be Jesus Christ from what we can see from the text. The only way that man can come to know anything about the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light, who no eye has ever seen or can see, that's Paul writing to Timothy as uh, in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. The only way that man can come to know anything about the invisible God and see him is by looking to the Son, who is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Several commentaries say that many who read Colossians 1.15 are reminded or turn their minds immediately to the fact that man was made in the image of God in the Genesis account. And, and, and maybe we should go there. We've heard about this morning how that entire uh, truth, the entire doctrine is turned upside down, inside out, and made to be something not just stupid, but evil. This uh, event, the creation of man, in the image of God is a very specific event in Genesis. It's not surprising, given the great men- uh, given the mention in Colossians 1, of creation. So people see uh, the Son of God, uh, the image of the invisible God, and then we will see later, not in the sermon, how creation uh, uh, rectifies all of that. Maybe it's helpful just to consider briefly Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and it made dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Identifying how the image of God is seen in man has filled countless books. There are books and books written about the image of God in man and what it means and how it looks. There are also widely varying views on what the Imago Dei actually is, the image of God. Which communicable attributes of God comprise the image of man? How does man look like God? And the problem is we're trying to make man look like God in a way which the scriptures do not do. The fact is the scripture does not specify what is included in the image of God in man. It is not specified. We are not told in which way man is made in the image of God. We are given some insight as to what is the result of that. Uh, but we have, today we find people say, well, God is a rational being and man is a rational being, so maybe that is it. It's not said in Genesis. God is an emotional being and we are emotional. Maybe it's that. It's not said in Genesis. God is a, a, a God who loves and maybe because we, it's not said in Genesis. So while those things may well be within the image of God in man, it's not specified in the text. We are told certain things about the image of God uh, image of God as it relates to man and creation. Number one, the image of God in man included a likeness to God. We're not told what that likeness is. The man is the only creation to be in the image of God. Of all that God created, everything after their own kind, 
And man was not created after the kind of God, because God is not a created being. He cannot be, uh, man cannot be part of the kind of God. That in itself, it's a blasphemous statement. But man is the only of God's creation of all creatures that had, had life in them, is made in the image of God. Man and woman are equally made in the image of God. There's no, there's no distinction. The image of God is found in man only and not in the rest of creation. We just said that. The image of God in mankind was directly linked to man's dominion over all the earth and all life that it contained. That's a direct result of man being made in the image of God. The dominion over creation was a direct relationship with the command to be fruitful and multiply. So not only are they given dominion, but at the point of being given the dominion, it's the expectation they will be fruitful and multiply, and mankind would have dominion over God's creation. An indication that this dominion was to be shared by Adam's progeny. Number seven, the image of God was not of one person in the Godhead, but of all the Godhead. God says, let us make man in our image. So the image of man is made in the likeness of a triune God in plurality, and because of that, man is a unique uh, creation of God, a creation that God made so that he who has someone to represent him over all creation as a vice regent. Writers of systematic theologies include lists of attributes of man that they see as reflective of the image of God in man. And these lists do not all agree. But exegetical theology confines itself simply to what is recorded in the text, and there is very little detail. The overarching truth derived from the Genesis account is this. Because man is made in the image of God, he was given the divinely delegated authority to represent God and rule over God's creation as God's vice regent. He is not equal to God at any level. He serves under divine authority at every level. He is never in any way close to equal to God. God is the creator who has no beginning and no end, who is an eternal being, who has no created, no one has created him, he's not being created, the uncreated eternal being. Man is a created being, finite, at a starting point in his existence, and in no way is he equal to God at any level, by any stretch of the imagination. But he has God, but he was God's representative over creation. We say was, because man, man no longer has dominion over creation, as Adam was originally given. Example is, we know that God says in chapter 1, verse 26, have dominion over not only all the animals, but over the earth itself. And then in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 17, Adam loses that, and the earth now becomes his enemy. And he has to uh, uh, eat by the sweat of his face, and the ground is cursed, and in pain, he eats all the days of his life. But the sun, being in the image of the invisible God, is nothing like the image of God in man. Two totally different concepts, two totally different realities. Whereas man is made in the image of God, the sun is the image of God. The difference is significant. When we recognize that man is made in the image of God, we conclude that deity has brought into existence a creature that in some way reflects attributes of the creator. But the creature remains vastly insignificant in relation to the creator. On the other hand, when we see the sun as the image of God, or is the image of the invisible God, we see that he is not a diminished representative of, of God, but that he is a full and true reflection of all that God is in every way. The writer to the Hebrews states it like this. Long ago, in many ways, and in, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the express image, is what the King James Version says, of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This word, exact imprint, has the same sense of Christ, of the Son being the image of the invisible God. An exact imprint, uh, in the day when this was written, would be seen in the coin that would they have for currency. And a, 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 a skilled engraver would engrave coins to have the, the head of the emperor and whatever else was necessary to make it valuable. And when you held two coins together, you couldn't tell the difference. Today we have uh, the same process. We have molds that mold various things. Parts for cars, things for your kitchen, shoes for your kids, it doesn't matter. But if you take two things out of the same mold and you look at them side by side, they are exactly the same. There is no difference. Uh, unlike the image of man, uh, image of God in man, when man is vastly different from God. And so these examples really help us understand that when Hebrews says that he is the exact imprint uh, um, of his nature, of the nature of God, he's exactly like God. When we see Jesus, we see God. That is clear. When the people of Galilee saw Jesus, they saw God, even though they did not justify him. Jesus says in chapter 14 of John's Gospel to Philip, he's just spoken to Thomas, and then Philip uh, uh, gets, part, gets into the conversation, and Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So here, even in his uh, human form, in this human body rather, as he went about in the form of a servant, walking amongst men, doing all that was good, doing all that was righteous, experiencing all that he had come to do, even in, in, in that body, he was able to show to them that he was God. And he says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this fifth expands on the person of the Son. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he's the firstborn of all creation. This morning you saw that term butchered again. Firstborn. Firstborn does not mean that he was born. It does not have it. In a sense, when it is used in some of some texts, it could mean that the first person to be born in the family was recognized as a firstborn, but that was not a given thing. And that's what it means here. And it doesn't mean that anywhere else when it refers to Christ. When it says he's the firstborn, that means he is the prototokos. It denotes uh, not sequence, but a, a, a level of rank that is supreme and that nothing else can supersede. He is above all. He is beyond all. He's almost untouchable unless he allows himself to be touched. He is ranked at a level that no creature can ever attain to. He is the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean he was born first of all creation. He was not born into creation. Creation exists, as we will see in, in, in subsequent sermons. Uh, creation exists because he brought creation into being. He was there before the worlds were formed. In Psalm 89... A Maskil of Ethan, uh, he writes this about David the king. He's writing about the king uh, who is God's servant. Uh, and God says about uh, David in verse 27, And I will make him, that's David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now David wasn't the first king of Israel, right? So that 
does away with that kind of logic. And David wasn't the eldest son in the family. On the contrary, he was the baby boy in the family. So he's the youngest son, the second king, and yet God said, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was the youngest of Jesse's sons, but God makes him the firstborn, the highest rank. David is ranked above all other kings by God because ultimately David's throne is above every other throne of any king of all time. And ultimately this throne of David, which David occupied as king, that throne will be set up again in Christ, the son of David, David's better son. He will uh, occupy the throne. So David is shown as the firstborn, and by doing that, God is setting up that, uh, that, 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 that line of, of royal um, um, supremacy, of which Christ is the supreme and only true king. Colossians 1, 15-20, the supremacy of Christ is established immediately in the very first verse of what has been called the Christological hymn. This is all about Christ's supremacy, which is why we've called this uh, sermon, and this is only part of the greater sermon, that this is the supremacy of Christ in all things. The significance of the superior ranking of the firstborn, which does not mean the first to be born, places Christ before and outside of creation. This precisely is the meaning of verse 17 of Colossians 1. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The one who is our Savior, the one who is our Lord, the one who has taken us out of the domain of darkness and placed it in the domain of light, into his kingdom, changes from children of darkness into children of light. This is the one who is before all things. And we live in a world where, where men's hearts are failing them. We're living in a world where people have a, a foreboding sense of the future. People are finding everything to be concerned about. That things are winding down, falling flat, wrapping up, coming to pieces, and waiting for a great reset. Keep waiting. We serve one who is our Lord and our Master, who is before all things. And in him, all these things hold together. Stop worrying about the world. Be good stewards of God's creation. Do not be wasteful. Be good stewards of how you use resources. But stop worrying about the world. Stop trying to save the world. It's in him. And he alone has prerogative over how this world lasts and how it comes to an end. And the, and, and the, the authenticity of his first rank is borne out by the work of creation. Colossians 1 verse 16. For bind all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Understand clearly without un unpacking this particular verse that nothing exists anywhere. We speak about creation on this earth. But the universe is out there. And you know that we are trying to see how far we can get into space with satellites and, and giant telescopes. And we keep finding more and, and more and more. And not only is there so much of that creation, but there's a creation that is in heaven. And so no matter where they are, no matter what it is, whether it be things or people or rulers or authorities, everything that exists in any sense of existence exists because he has created it. Colossians 1 is not the only place in the scripture places the equality of the Son with the Father. Colossians 1 is not the only place where we see the role of the Son being the visible expression of the invisible Father and that his role is ratified by his work in creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. 
We already read this. I'll read it again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is spoken about to us by His Son, through whom also He created the world. In fact, John does a similar thing in the opening verses of his Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we see the image of God, and God the Father as two separate entities, separate persons, able to be in each other's company and be able to relate to each other and also in Scripture to commune with each other. John has exactly the same story in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, that means that uh, He was always there, and the Word was with God, so He was in the same place with God in the beginning, and the beginning, uh, don't try and put a time to it, don't try and put a time to it, that mention that we're aware of, it simply said, in the beginning, was the Word. He was and He always was. Uh, the Word was with God, face to face with God, and the Word was God. So in that verse, we are told everything we need to know about the One who is the image of the invisible God. In fact, John helps us with understanding. He says in verse 14 of the same chapter, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of His only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When he says Jesus is the only son, uh, it doesn't mean he's the only son amongst many. He may be our brother, but this is the one and only son, the unique son, monogamous. There's no one like this who can claim sonship of God. Only he has a rightful claim to this only sonship, as expressed in John chapter 1, verse 14. He is the unique son of God who not only is with God, and is like God, but is God. In fact, John says in verse 8 of that same chapter, chapter 1 of his gospel, almost a reflection of what he will later write in his epistle, uh, his first epistle, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now, those of you who will check on this before Wednesday, you will see that that word seen is not exactly the same word as he uses in his epistle. Uh, the sense here is a bit more perceived, but it still has a sense that you will never get to know who God is, whether it is in a physical sense or a spiritual sense, without the Son revealing Him to us. He is the only image of the invisible God. And so in conclusion, we have read this morning, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The appearance of the Son in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord made it possible for ordinary men to look into the face of Yahweh and not be struck down in death. The visibility of the Son in the New Testament as the Messiah made it possible for ordinary men to see the Father who otherwise would have remained unseen to them according to 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. It is noteworthy that the appearance of angel of the Lord is never mentioned again after the birth of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. God could not reveal himself to mortal men as transcendent God, the holy God, the God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. But Jesus, his beloved son, changed all of that. Everything was changed by a single man through a single work as he lived a perfect life and died a... Uh, a death that appeased the Father and was able to reconcile us to the Father is because of this man, Jesus Christ, 
a man whose name has become a swear word in the mouth of those who deny him, who despise him, and who relegate him to a being inferior to Satan. They don't know him. They don't love him simply because they do not belong to him. This morning, you and I who are children of God, those of us who have named the name of Jesus, those of us who have confessed with our mouth that he is Lord and believe that God is raised from the dead, we have been saved. And because of that salvation, all that we heard this morning about him becomes precious to us because our lives and our future and all of eternity is wrapped up in this one, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your, your son who is the eternal, magnificent, only son of God, deemed fit to make himself of no reputation, and he found in, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And so this morning, Lord, we, we need thank you that we are able to read concerning him, and see that he is indeed the one who has come to reveal you to us. We pray that what we have heard this morning may stay with us. May we go and delve deep into your word to learn more about him who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you now in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.